0: Me to Philippians chapter 4. I'd like to speak this morning about a topic that I'm very familiar with, especially this week. It's anxiety. I have been through it with a rough week at work and sickness in the house and head gasket blown on my car and a very dear friend in the hospital and stuff of life. How many of you are worried today about something? Yeah, how many of you live with someone who is worried about something? How many of you are sitting next to someone who is worried about something? I I do believe that uh, stress gets to all of us from time to time. So we're going to look at Philippians 4 this morning. You know, I found a marquee at a church that I don't think was meant to be funny, but I thought it was. And it says, is worry killing you? Let the church help. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to try that this morning, okay? But first... Some of you are saying, well, I don't need this message. I don't have any stress in my life. I have a stress test that's foolproof. And uh, I'm going to show you a slide in a minute that has two dolphins on it. If you see the two dolphins clearly, close your Bibles, take a nap. You don't need this message. Otherwise, your stress levels too high and you'll need to hear what I say. Oh. <laughs> Somebody in the early service said they were so stressed they actually saw a cow jumping out of the water. Wow, it's kind of hard to believe. How about depression? Anybody depressed today? Some of you don't know that the Scripture tells us that anxiety in the heart of the man can make us depressed, can give us a heavy heart, can weigh us down. Anxiety does a lot of damage to us, and we live in a world that's very stressful with many cares. It affects us all, but God has a very clear answer in His Word as to how to deal with it. I think if Jesus was here this morning, He would say what He always says, peace, peace, In me you'll have peace, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Of course, if Jesus was here this morning, I wouldn't be speaking and we'd really have a parking lot problem, but he's not here. To paraphrase it, I think in my words it would be relax, enjoy the crisis. It's what God would have us to learn today. There are those who think that anxiety is just a normal part of life and it's not that bad, and to a certain extent they're right. There's some that say, well, it's just like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you don't get anywhere. But it's more than that. It's not benign. It's a very harmful thing. It's harmful to us physically, emotionally, spiritually. In every way, anxiety is a negative thing, and God forbids that we worry. So anxiety is also sin. Well, let's look at what God's Word has to say about it in Philippians 4. Starting in verse 4, reading from the New American Standard, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice, the song we sung this morning. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What's the opposite of worry? Don't worry, be No. You you guys listen to the radio too much. God says, don't worry, be peaceful. That's the opposite. So what does being peaceful look like? Well, he shows us here in the beginning. He says, don't be anxious, but be like this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Your translation may have said something different there for gentle spirit, like your gentleness, your reasonableness, your patience. Which describes you this morning? Gentle, reasonable, patient, or let me give you the the uh, dictionary definition of anxiety. Feeling uneasy, fretting, overwrought, having disturbing thoughts about something that might happen in the future, dwelling on endless what-ifs, being negative, sensing a pending doom, experiencing mood swings or general feelings of terror, feeling out of control, think you're going crazy. Describe you? Or are you gentle and peaceable and patient? What about the person you live with? Here's a problem that we have with anxiety. We think the wrong way. There's three major ways that we think wrong that causes anxiety. The first is having excess concern. If you'd like to keep your finger in Philippians, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with me. He says here in Philippians 4 that we're to be anxious for nothing. Your Bible may say, be careful for nothing or be concerned for nothing. Is God really saying that we're never to be anxious, we're never to be concerned, that we're supposed to live a carefree life or else we're in sin? No, not exactly. And I'll show you this in this passage here in 1 Corinthians 7.32. Paul is speaking about marriage and he says, but I want you to be free from concern. Your Bible says, I want you to be free from anxiety, free from cares. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be be both holy in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world how she may please her husband. So what does this passage mean? That marriage is anxiety? (laughs) Or does it mean that when you get married, you bring on new legitimate concerns in your life? How to take care of your spouse. The key is that we're not to have no concerns. We are to have an appropriate level of concern. We are not to overdo it. We are not to go overboard with our concerns. There's a Swedish proverb that says that worry often gives a small thing a big shadow. The old mountain out of a molehill is what worry will do to a proper concern. So how do we know when we've crossed over this line of just having a a concern for something and being overly concerned for something? Well, it shows up in a divided mind. Our mind becomes torn between two things, good things and bad things, at the same time. The word anxiety actually comes from two root words. The first root, uh, Marizo means to divide. And the second word, nous, means the mind or understanding. Putting together anxiety means to divide our mind, to have a conflict within our mind, within our thoughts. I'll give you a uh, an example here. Here's a man whose car is stuck in a flood. Does this guy have some legitimate concerns? Yes. How am I going to get my car out of here? How am I going to get to work? Is the data on my laptop still okay? How's my mother-in-law in in the trunk doing? He's going to have some issues here. right? Now here's where he gets anxiety, is when he starts thinking something like, what if a nuclear sub comes down the street? Or what if Jaws comes out and grabs my wife? He has taken... Legitimate concerns and mixed it with destructive thoughts and wound up dividing his mind. That's why the Bible says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let me show you a third way that we think wrong. We, uh, we have excessive concern, we divide our minds, and then we doubt God's sovereignty When we're in a situation and we're worrying, we're basically saying to God, you're not wise enough to handle this. You're not capable enough to get me out of this situation. You're not willing to take this burden from me at this time. Or maybe we think he's abandoned us altogether, that he's not even in the situation with us, so we wrestle the control into our own hands. I'll have to take it from here since you're not around. Or perhaps we've forsaken him as our counselor and gone to the man's wisdom, to the world's wisdom, to resolve the situation. We've doubted his word, we've doubted his providence, we've doubted his care. In our scripture reading this morning about Mary and Martha, in Luke 10, verse 40, it says that Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Two major mistakes there. One, Lord, do you not care? Do you think Jesus didn't know what was going on in the room at that moment? Do you think Jesus doesn't know what's going on in this room at this moment? and doesn't know what's going on in every room at every moment? Do you think Jesus doesn't care about what's happening at any moment in your life? Martha thought he didn't. Jesus, you don't care. And then she tried to deal with it sinfully by telling God what to do. Tell her to help me. You don't even care, but I'll tell you what needs to be done here. Help her. She needs help. Gotta help me. How often do we do that in our prayers? God, you're not listening to me. You know what's going on down here? Here's what you gotta do. You gotta give me a job. You gotta heal this person. You gotta fix my marriage. You don't care, do you? Yeah, he cares. He's always there. But when we get our eyes off of him, when we doubt that he's in the situation and sovereignly control it, we become like, Martha, where the Lord turns to her and says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and bothered of so many things. That's how we become. And it winds up damaging our relationship with Jesus. She's being rebuked by Jesus. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus being blessed by him. Spurgeon says this, Anxiety makes us doubt God's loving kindness and thus, our love to him grows cold and we feel mistrust and thus grieve the spirit of God so that our prayers become hindered. Our consistent example marred and our life, one of self-seeking. Thus, lack of confidence in God leads us to wander far from him. And the opposite of this is true as well. You sit at his feet. You trust him in every situation You stop the cares of this world and say, I know you're working something grand here. Let me get in line with what you're doing. I know you care. And you become like Mary. You've chosen the better thing. The only thing, the good part, Jesus calls it. When we're anxious, we need to ask ourselves, am I being overly concerned? Is my mind divided at this moment between healthy thoughts and destructive thoughts? Am I looking inward and outward only, but not upward? If so, cut it out. God says, don't do that. I'll tell you what you should do, and it's not yoga, and it's not meditating yourself on a nice warm beach someplace, and it's not psychotherapy, and it's not Valium, it's prayer. The problem that we have is thinking wrong. The prescription is prayer. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. When we're in the midst of a trial and we pray, we are acknowledging God's presence in the situation. I know you're there, God. I thank you for being there. I'm going to talk to you. I know I'm insignificant and my issues are even more insignificant. And that's why I can come to you. Because Christ has allowed me to come boldly before your throne in my time of need. When we're helpless, we have to look to the only one that can help us. There are 650 prayers recorded in the Bible and 450 of them answered. I think for some reason or other, God wants to hear what we have to say. He says, pray when you're stressed. Pray. And he also tells us to pray in a certain way. Did you notice he says to come to him by prayer and supplication is the first word. Supplication means to beg or to plead, to ask earnestly, to humbly implore. The first thing you come before him is say, Lord, forgive me. I'm worried and that's sin. I ask for your forgiveness. It's one thing you come to him to ask for. You cry out and say, Lord, stop the craziness in my life. Bring some calm to the storms. Help me focus. Grant me relief. Bring a resolution to this, or at the very least, give me your grace that I might endure it. Supplicate. But then he says, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we thank him before requesting. How often do we fail to thank God? And I think it's primarily because we're anxious over what we lack instead of what we have. We should be thankful for the things we have. In our reading today, he says, be content with food, drink, clothes. That's all he tells us. Nobody here today looks too thirsty or hungry. You're all clothed. So none of you have a reason to be anxious. We, in 21st century America think God owes us something, that we have rights to a nice home and a nice car and a nice job and good health, and all of this is ours to be had, and if one of those things is taken from us, or when we don't receive one of those things, we get anxious. God says, "Don't worry about those things. don't worry about your life. I didn't promise you a rose garden. as a matter of fact, I promised you a thorn garden. This world is going to be trouble. It's going to have its trials. My wife has always said that this life is a series of calamities strung together by relative periods of calm. It's a better way of looking at life than thinking it's supposed to be pretty and perfect all the time and when something upsets your plan, that you become anxious and worried. We should be thankful that he's working all things together for the good for those of us who love him. We should be thankful that if he's begun a good work, he's going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And should be thankful that there is nothing that's going to affect his plan. He started out from eternity past on plan A, and it's still intact, and nothing's going to change that. Now, one thing. The rest of the world looks at America and says, we're a nation of whiners, and we are. We don't pray with thanksgiving. And it's interesting how thanksgiving comes before the third thing, which is requesting, letting our needs be known. We can come to him, and we can beg. Beg for certain things. We can thank him for all the wonderful things he already has given us and all his grace we've already experienced in the situation. And then we can request, Lord, help me. Take my cares. Let me cast them on your shoulders. They're broad. They can handle them. I can't bear this burden. Give me strength. Give me wisdom. Give me mercy. Give me relief or give me your grace. We ask him and then he does what's best. It was an army chaplain. It was approached by two soldiers that were going to battle, and they said, would you pray for us today? The chaplain said, sure, I'll pray the same prayer for both of you. And you're going to go into battle today, and one of two things will happen. Either you'll be wounded or you won't. If you're wounded, you may die or you won't. Either way, I'm going to say the same prayer. Pray the same for both of you, but I don't determine how it comes out. We pray, God decides. And the thing that the chaplain said is that whatever happens today on the battlefield, know this, that God's glory will be maximized in it. When we get to the end state... When there comes to a point when all death is conquered, every tear is wiped away, all evil is done with, and the Father looks at the kingdom that he's given his Son, and the Son turns the kingdom back over to the Father, that God may be all in all, and we see everything in all of its glory, we will know at that moment that every single thing God did was to maximize that moment. In the same way that Christ can't lose one of his sheep that was given to him, or eternity wouldn't be complete, He also cannot fail in any one aspect of his plan to maximize that moment of revelation of his glory. So we don't see it now, but we can know for sure that at that moment that that prayer was answered the right way for those two soldiers and it will be answered the right way for us in our situation. The power is not in our prayer. It's in the one who answers the prayer. And anxiety is war. But prayer brings peace. It's a promise. It's an absolute promise. He gives it to us here. He says that if you pray, I promise to give you peace. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We pray, and he gives us a supernatural peace, A piece that transcends all human intellectual powers, all analysis, all insights, all of our understanding. It's a piece we can't describe to anyone. And the word here for guard, where this will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, it's a a picture of a sentry that's walking around a building. Someone who is, is maybe guarding a fortress. And he's keeping watch against all the enemies and all the attacks so that those who are inside can dwell in peace and safety. And God says, when you pray, I set up that fortress around your heart and your mind, around the innermost depths of your being, around your brain, around your thoughts. I protect you from all of these destructive things and emotions and fears and doubts that can enter into your life because I am the century that's guarding your heart and mind so that you can rest. You don't have to worry about any more attacks because I have sealed you with my Holy Spirit to protect you. And it's ours for the asking, but it only comes from focusing on God. Chuck Swindoll says, We push the worrisome, clawing monster of pressure off our shoulders and hand it over to God in prayer. I do that hundreds of times every year, and I cannot recall a time when it didn't provide relief. In its place always comes a quietness of spirit a calming of the mind. With a relieved mind, rest returns. Do it often. Simple, and we all know it, but we often fail to do it, to just sit at his feet and talk with him. We deal with the things we can deal with in our situation and just cast the rest on him because there's nothing we can do. When we're surrounded on all sides, look up because the top is open. When you can't sleep at night, don't count sheep, talk to the shepherd. He never sleeps. No sense both of us being up all night. Pastor Reed's always said that Christians fight best on their knees, and we're at war with anxiety. that's where the battle's to be fought. So we think the wrong way, but he says the answer to that is prayer, and the guaranteed promise is that we'll have the peace of God. Yeah, damn, but I pray. When I'm in the midst of stuff, I pray. I still don't have any peace. How come? He said, well, there's another problem maybe that we have to deal with, and that is that maybe you're thinking wrong. I'm sorry, you're thinking about the wrong things. The first thing was that we think wrong way. The second thing is that we think about the wrong things. I sure wish I could see my slides. Uh, Again, there's three keys to this. There's three main ways that we think wrong that cause anxiety. The first thing is that we think about things that will never happen. He said in our reading today, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have enough worries of its own. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That doesn't mean that we learn to dread one day at a time. It just means that we're supposed to stop dreading altogether. Let me give you an example here. Which of these two pictures do you fear more? A snake biting a man or a vending machine? You're four times more likely to die from a vending machine than a snake bite. Four times more likely to die from your pajamas catching on fire than a snake bite. Thirteen times more likely to die from a pig or hot water. Thirty-three more times likely to die from a ballpoint pen than a snake bite. 117 times more likely to die in a bathtub. And get this one. 261 times more likely to die falling off a piece of furniture than from a snake bite. So hold on to your pews. You're in danger. Why do we worry about snakes? Things that will never happen to us, we worry about them. Most things that make us sigh and fret are things that haven't happened yet. Someone once said that anxiety is duress rehearsal. I like this quote from this lady. Uh, It's here someplace, there it is. She says, don't tell me worrying never does any good. Most of the things I worry about never happen. (laughs) And she's right. 40% of the things we worry about do never happen. 30% of the things we worry about are in the past and they're beyond our control now. 12% of the things we worry about are health issues with no symptoms. And 10% of the things we worry about are things that have no reason to be worried about. So in reality, only 8% of the things that we might ever really worry about could happen. But we still worry, don't we? There was an article uh, on MSN.com on Friday. It said, are you too stressed? I said, oh, i got to read this. So I click and open it up, and it's an article from Psychology Today about how to identify stress in your life and what to do about it. I didn't agree with anything in the whole two-page article except this. It said, here's the solution to anxiety, one of them, outside of drugs and psychotherapy and all this. Create an understanding of the thought patterns that bring on worry. It helps anxiety sufferers to separate unrealistic from realistic thoughts. They got that right. We have to think about the things that are reality, not the things that might be. All right, the second way that we think about wrong things is that we think about things that are beyond our control. Jesus today in the reading, where he, say, he said, who are you by worrying can add an hour to your life or an inch to your statue? You can't. Why do you worry about those things? He says, if you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? So many things are not in your control. Why do you worry about them? How many are worried about a terrorist attack in Rochester? Weather. I can't do anything to stop the weather. Can you? We worry about it. Getting older. Can you stop getting older? What about worrying about someone that's not saved? Can't do anything about that either, can we? Losing your hair? going to happen. Why worry about these things? But we do. He says, don't worry about it. I've worried my whole life about being short. And every time I complain, he knocks me down a quarter inch. So I finally started saying, okay, you didn't make a mistake, God. He doesn't make mistakes when we lose our job, when we have a health issue, when we got big ears, whatever it is. It's the way he made us. Nothing's going to affect his plan. There are some people that are just not happy with their lot in life, and they do everything they can to change it because they're not content with the way God's made them give you a good example of this. Michael Jackson came into the world as a handsome black man. He's going out of the world as I don't know what. There are some people, though, even though given the opportunity, they would prefer to stay in their lowly life, to stay the way they look, and they're perfectly happy and content, like Shrek. (laughs) Given the choice to be rich and good-looking, he chose, no, I'll live in a swamp and be who I am because that's how I am. I think that's really the key to life. The major key is to learn to be content Sorry, in whatever state we're in. From experience, I can tell you it was a lot harder to be content in the state of New York than it was the state of Hawaii, but I don't think that's what this is talking about. However God has made us, wherever God has put us, be thankful, be content. The Apostle Paul says that a few verses later in this chapter, in verse 11. I've learned through abasing and abounding to be content in all things. Because God knows what he's doing. We get the uh, serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and to know the wisdom between the two in order to do, the wisdom to discern the difference. Isn't that true? I mean, it's a good prayer. It's like, if I can't change it, then help me to know I can't. But if I can, then help me to change it. He doesn't want us spending our time fighting the things we can't fix. He wants us to turn those things over to him. He doesn't want us spending our time thinking about things that will never happen. But a third thing that we do very often is that we think about our circumstances, not the God who's in our circumstances. We had the illustration read this morning from Luke about the men who were in the boat with Jesus. And the storm comes up and the waves are crashing and Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. And these men are fearful of their lives. They're terrified. And they go to Jesus and they wake him. Don't you care? Aren't you concerned that we're about to perish? They were looking at this circumstance, not looking at the God who is in the circumstance with them. And Jesus looks at them and says, where is your faith? And he stands up and calms the sea and says, peace. And they get fearful. Who is this man that even commands the wind and the water? How often do we forget that in the situation we're in, God's in it with us? Where is our faith? Not only can he calm the winds and the seas, he created them. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He never abandons us for a moment. He was in the lion's den with Daniel. He was in the fire furnace with the three Hebrew slaves. He's always in the midst of our trials. And there's one thing that you can learn in this situation is that If you stayed fixed on him, he'll give you perfect peace, like Isaiah 26.3 says. There are so many people that don't want to do something for Jesus because they don't have a peace about it. These men were in the perfect center of God's will. Christ said, get in the boat, let's go across the lake. They obeyed him. They got in the boat, they're going across the lake, and they were in the midst of turmoil, terrible confusion, stress, fearing for their lives, and they were smack dab in the middle of God's will. You don't have to have a peace about it. You just have to understand that if I'm obeying God's will and things are crazy, well, I still got God with me and He can help me through this situation because He's the one that calms the seas in my life. Where is our faith? So what do we do when we get like this? When we start thinking about wrong things, what do we do? He gives us the answer. He says the answer is to ponder to meditate. Don't think on wrong things, but as verse 4-8 says, that whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. If you don't hear anything today, hear this one thing from me, that anxiety is a battle in our mind. It's not the stuff that's happening to us. It's how we're reacting to it in our mind and in our thoughts. When Pastor Reed comes back, he's going to start Romans chapter 12. And it says right in the opening verses, to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We can think like the world. We can allow the world to put its pressure on us. We can believe that this is all there is for us, is this life right here and right now as Pastor Reed was teaching last week, we've got to move way beyond that from theology to eschatology to doxology. We have to take these situations and realize that if I'm stressed at this moment because of the world, I'm not thinking right and I'm not living in the right kingdom. My eternal home is in heaven. It's not here. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't think about the things of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Every time I preach... My kids are here, they'll attest to this. I say, you are what you think. Proverbs 23, 7, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Garbage in, garbage out. You will act according to the way you think. If you think negatively, if you dwell on all irrational thoughts and things that are out of control in your life, you're going to become negative. You're going to become irrational. Out of control people. However, if you think on these things, truth and nobility and righteousness and purity and love and good and virtue, well, you're going to become that. True and noble and just and pure and lovely and good and virtuous. Meditation is a lost art in our society today. The word muse means to think, to ponder, to consider something deeply in thought. Guess what amuse means? The opposite. We are a society of amusement. What do we do on our weekends? I hear this at work when people come in on Monday morning. Boy, I got wasted this weekend. I went on a real mind bender. I got stupid. Or I, uh, you know, I vegged out in front of the TV or whatever it is. They come up with these expressions because our idea of relieving anxiety is to just tune it out. Don't deal with it. Don't think about it. God says, no, use your minds and use your minds in the right ways for the right reasons to think on the right things. Take these things into account. Reckon with these things thoughtfully. Estimate their value. Don't just think on them, but dwell on them. The image is the image of a cow chewing its cud, he munches on some grass, gets this big yucky ball going in his mouth for a while, and when he's tired, he swallows it. A little while later, he brings it back up again and chews on it some more. Continues this process until it turns into milk. And that's what he's saying here. Take out your word. Meditate on it. Read it. Think about it. Spend some time with it. When you can't go anymore, close it. Come back to it again. Maybe somebody will say something. Maybe you'll read a billboard. Maybe something will trigger and you want to go back to it and read it again. Reconsider it. Ponder it. Think about it some more. What might he be trying to say to me about this? Martin Luther said that Christians shouldn't read so many books, but they should read a few books over and over, many times, we're in an information age where we take in everything and try to absorb it all instead of just focusing on a few things, clearing our mind and being still before God. Psalm 46:10: "Be still and know that I am God." Psalm four, four: Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. I'm gonna make a new bumper sticker instead of honk if you love Jesus, it'll say if you love Jesus, be quiet. Stop the noise and distraction. Things are too hectic and and, and distracting in our lives, and our, our our quiet time just needs an overhaul. Let me read this quote to you. We Christians must simplify our lives or lose untold treasures on earth and in eternity. Modern civilization is so complex as to make the devotional life all but impossible. The need for solitude and quietness was never greater than it is today. Agree? A.W. Tozer, 70 years ago. As it was now, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, we are never going to have enough time to meditate, to discipline, to take that time, carve it out in our lives and sit at Jesus' feet like Mary did. Consider the good part. Which won't be taken away from us. Because we are what we think. We become what we meditate on. It's better to think about all that's right with God than all that's wrong with us in the world. There's plenty wrong with us, but there's way more right with God. What winds up coming as a result of our time in meditation? The praise of God. Did you notice here he says, in summary, after you've meditated on things that are true and noble and pure and lovely and of good report and good virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on this. Anything that's moral or spiritually excellent that can properly be praised. In short, anything that's Christ-like. This entire list of things to meditate on are all descriptors of Jesus Christ. He's truth, he's noble, he's just, he's pure, he's lovely, and he's praiseworthy. Thinking praiseworthy things will cause the one who's worthy to be praised. This is where Paul starts in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Don't be anxious. Rejoice. Again, we're turning all that we're doing to doxology, to praise. We take our anxiety, turn it to peace, turn it to praise. But then I do. I pray. I read my Bible. I meditate. I'm still anxious. I don't seem to have any relief. Well, there's probably a third reason, an issue in your life, and this is where most of us fall short, is that we act the wrong way. Philippians 4, nine. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Anxiety makes us focus inward. We keep things bottled up. It paralyzes us because of our focus. There's no outlet sometimes, and so it continues to build, and we continue to get wrapped up in the anxiety in an endless cycle, and our worrying increases because we're thinking wrongly, and wrong thinking will always lead to wrong actions. There's two men in a boat. They've been stranded for a long time, and all of a sudden a bottle floats by, They he opens it, and a genie comes out and gives them an each, each one wish. So Ernest says, oh, I'm starved. I want to go back home with my family. Get me out of here. Poof, he's gone. He's back eating and drinking and being merry with his family. The genie looks at Frank and says, what do you want? He says, I'm awful lonely. I wish Ernest was back here with me. What's the problem with the thinking there? Self-focused what I want, what I need, not thinking of others. When we think wrongly, we act wrongly. And this is the prescription that the Apostle Paul gives us, is to practice things. He said, the things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And this word do here comes from a Greek word, praso, which means to practice. Do it continuously. Do it repetitiously. Like a doctor or a lawyer has a practice. They do the same thing over and over and over again. Do these things until they become routine in your life. The word meditation, to meditate, means to take care of beforehand. You're in the scripture, you're meditating, you're spending some time, and you see that God tells us that if the sky is red at night, the next day is going to be a nice day. What do you do? Maybe I'll take a day off tomorrow because the sky's red tonight. Maybe I'll plan a picnic for the family. When you learn something from his word, do something with it. What he's taught you in his meditation times with you is something that you need to act on. Imitate Paul and imitate others that have gone before us and putting their thoughts into action. So not only do we act according to our thoughts, which is important because in the same way that wrong thinking leads to wrong actions, right thinking will lead to right actions. But he's also telling us to act according to right examples. He said, in the first case, on the thoughts, the things you've learned and received, the things I've taught you, the things that you've been instructed in. But now he's saying the things that you've heard and seen, the model, the behavior that's been modeled in front of you. Heard any good rumors lately about someone? I'll give you one. I heard a story. I actually verified this on the web where a guy was trying to get home for his wife on their anniversary in New York City and there was all kinds of traffic because it was a limousine that was stuck on a bridge. And this guy was a mechanic and instead of just stewing in his car and being anxious about not getting home in time for his anniversary, he goes up to the limousine and he says, can I help? And the guy says, just got a flat tire. He says, well, I can fix that for you. So while he's fixing the tire, the window rolls down in the back seat, and he said, gee, I'd, you know, I'd like to thank you. And he said, no, look, by getting this done, I'm getting home to my wife earlier for her anniversary. He said, oh, I'm sorry I made you do this on your anniversary. Why don't you give me your your name and address, and I'll send a letter to your wife thanking her for your services here today so she'll know your excuse was legitimate. So he does, and the next day a bouquet of roses shows up, with a card in it saying, thank you for the use of your husband and your mortgage is paid. You can sit there in traffic and stew about it and complain and honk your horn or you can get out and do something. And sometimes when you get going to go do something, great blessings come your way because that's the way God designed it. All the anxiety of the moment of him being late for his anniversary, traffic and all that stuff went away instantly because he did something. I'll give you my bank account and mortgage if you're interested, but do something. Christ said, I've given you an example example that you should serve one another when he washed their feet. Do as I've done unto you. Love as I've loved you. Follow my example. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Here's a guy that sings when he's in chains. He's in a Roman prison and he writes the epistle of joy that we're studying today. He rejoices when he's beaten for the sake of the gospel because he's considered worthy to suffer for Christ. These do imitate me. You can't wring your hands and roll up your sleeves at the same time. It's one or the other. Peter walking on water. Oh, Peter. How often we say Peter was a failure. But there's men in the boat and they see Jesus walking on the water and they're afraid. They're worried. They're anxious. Jesus says, come to me. Who gets out of the boat? Peter. Peter walks. He walks on the water. And he does just fine until he starts looking at his circumstances, until he starts relying on himself, not the God who calms the seas, the God who walks on water, and he begins to fail. Well, what does Jesus do? Hold him under the water? Throw him in a boat and slap him up? No. He lifts him back up, puts him in the boat, says, next time you'll walk all the way. Next time, you guys won't be so worried when there's a storm because you know I'm in the boat with you. But to the 11 who sits in the boat, where's your faith? Why didn't you get out and walk? Every time we walk with God in the midst of a crisis, we learn more about him, about his miracle-working power, about how he likes to resolve situations. But if we stay wringing our hands and racked up in our own anxiety and worry, we sometimes never see God in the situation. We never start walking by faith at all. If you're feeling stressed today, we'll start serving someone, disciple someone, minister to someone, bless someone, visit someone in a hospital or a prison. There's a million things that God says we can do to get the focus off ourselves, off our situation. Really stressed? Feel like praying? Pray for someone else. It's a prayer God seems to love to answer. When you're consumed and you pray for someone else, and that will bring the peace to you quicker than praying for your own situation. The result of it all is you'll, you'll know that God's with, it, with you. He's in it. He promises this. Did you catch this last part here? The promise is that if we do this, we will get the God of peace. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. We pray and we get the peace of God. We meditate and act and we get the God of peace. How great is that? We get this God who's an ever-present help in our time of need. We get this God who we can sense is in us, who's guiding us, who's pulling us up when we're drowning. We get this God who calms the seas in our life when they're rough, who shows us over and over again that He has dominion over all things and there's no power in this age of the one to come that has anything on Him. We never know His miracle-working power unless we act. There's a quote that I also found this week that peace is not the absence of strife. It's the absence of stress during strife. We're not going to get rid of the situations in our life. It's a question of how we react to them and the reaction is in our mind. You can treat the physical symptoms. That's not going to solve it. It's how you think. John MacArthur says, the real challenge of the Christian life is not to eliminate every unpleasant circumstance but to trust in the good purpose of our infinite, holy, sovereign, powerful God in every difficulty. Those who know Him by trusting Him will experience the blessing of His perfect peace. So you've prayed, you've meditated, don't just stand there do something. That's His three-point plan for going from panic to peace. It's what He says we need to do. Because stress worry, anxiety in our lives is damaging. It can it can put our lives in great jeopardy. And actually, I want to play Jeopardy with you for just a moment to see if you've been paying attention, all right? We're going to play Jeopardy. We're going to have a final Jeopardy answer. And the category is the cares of this world. And here you go. Here's your question. In this crazy world, this is the only thing that brings true peace. Start the music. Write it down. All right. Our returning champion, Chuck Swindoll, is here. His answer is, what is the Word of God? Whether it's the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ, or whether it's the written Word of God that he's left for us, it is the only answer to peace. When we're panicked, we pray to the living Word. When we're panicked, we meditate on the written Word. And then we practice the things we've learned. That's his answer. And how much can we wager on this process? All of it. Safe place to put our bets because it is the only answer. There's a classic bumper sticker that you probably have all seen. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace with K N O W. How true that is. If you don't know Christ, you can't have peace. I don't know where you're at here today, but if you've never considered the claims of Christ, then you are at war with God and you cannot experience true peace in your life. Certainly not a peace that passes understanding. So your battle needs to start here. You need to understand that your sin has separated you from God and you need to understand also that Christ has gone to the cross of Calvary to pay the price for that sin so that you can be reconciled. Know Christ and you'll know peace this morning. And for the rest of us, we do know Christ and yet often we don't have peace. Well, the solution is the same for us. We need to surrender. We need to surrender our lives and our issues and our anxieties to him. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Because anxiety is bondage, and Christ came to set us free. And if we choose to live in bondage, it's our own choice. It's not his problem. We can trade in our cares and medications for prayers and meditations. I don't know how many of you saw the movie Apocalypse Now, but there's a scene towards the end of the movie where there's this fighting going on in this beach in Vietnam. There's mortar and missiles and rockets flying and everything, and this one guy sees the surf is up, and he goes and grabs a surfboard and runs out and starts surfing. Relax, enjoy the crisis. Stuff going on all around him. He's like, I'm going to surf. I was in the hospital a good part of this week with a good friend of mine whose 22-year-old son collapsed running in a track um, practice. And whether he lives or not is questionable. And if he does, whether he has full brain function is highly questionable. And there was so many people up there when this first happened. And his father was one by one talking to all of his college friends and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. We were reading scripture. We were praying. We were singing praise songs in the emergency room. Peace in the midst of turmoil. This is a man whose life was already ordered with prayer and meditation. And so when the trial came, it was nothing for him but to accelerate what he'd already done in his life. There's a real key And it takes discipline to learn how to relax and enjoy the crisis. David Jeremiah says this, and I'll close. The problem is worry, the prescription is prayer, and the program is to think and do those things which are commanded of us in God's word. The promise for all who follow this counsel is peace, the peace of of God, and best of all, the God of peace. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we come before you confessing our anxiety. We know, Lord, that this world is full of issues and full of things that can cause our feeble minds and hearts to fail. And, and yet, we know that you're sovereignly in control of all things. And in the end, all of it will be conquered. That you will be victorious and there'll be no more anxiety. There'll be no more evil. There will be nothing ever again for us to do but to praise you. And so we'd ask, Lord, that you would take our panic and turn it into peace and then into praise. That we would learn to focus on your kingdom, not this one that we live in. That you would help us by the renewing of our mind to begin to meditate on you and your attributes and your works and that we may transform our lives then according to the thoughts that you've planted there. We pray, God, that as we leave here today, we will take these three simple steps to heart as we move through this life. And that not only, Lord, may we experience peace, that we could bring peace to others as well. We thank you for this time together and we we pray that by your grace and mercy and Holy Spirit that you would make this real and practical in our lives and we'd ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.